if you've been paying attention, you know that we've been doing a series through the book of Ephesians. And um, Pastor Greg, it's been called Welcome to the New. And Pastor Greg's been starting with Ephesians 1 and working through this idea that Paul writes to this church at Ephesus about a new life. I gotta clean this up. Sorry, guys. This is a mess. Somebody's gonna have to vacuum when I'm done here. And so the last two weeks, Pastor Greg's been going through Ephesians 1. So I'm right at the beginning of Ephesians 2. And today we're gonna look at verses 1 through 10. Before I tell the story, I got it. We have volunteers every week at our warehouse. Withdraw. We're constantly going through uh, donated supplies to inventory them, to assemble the buckets of supplies that we send out after major disasters. And it's like every Wednesday morning. And so we've got a dedicated we've got a dedicated group of uh, volunteers who will come on those days and help us go through stuff. And every once in a while, we get new people. And this week, there was a group of four women who came into the coffee shop who uh, came to volunteer withdraw. It's fun having new people, you know? I mean, like, you get the same people every week. You start to have the same conversations every week. But new people, you're like, ooh, let's find, it's like a new toy, right? Like, ooh, let's, let's learn about you. And on this particular day, we were... Um, we were making Plarn. You guys are familiar with Plarn, yes? Yes, we did this on Impact Day a little bit back. There we go. And so um, we were cutting up plastic bags and making the Plarn that then gets crocheted into the tote bags that we send out after disasters. And so we have one group of ladies that were setting up and making the Plarn. Then we had another, group, uh, or another table where one of the ladies... Uh, was making plarn by herself. So my old youth pastor roots kicked in. I didn't want to have her just sit by herself, you know? There we go. And so I came and sat down and I just started making plarn. And the thing about making plarn is like, you can chat. You know, you're threading stuff together. You just, you're busy with your hands, but you just chat. So I started to talk to this woman, finding out what's going on with her, what's up with her life. And she was saying that her daughter is getting married in two weeks and that they're having a wedding at their, their home. I was like, and, you know, I DJ weddings, so I'm interested. Okay, that sounds interesting to me. So I said, uh, what kind of crowd you got coming out if you're having it at your house? She said, well, we invited 600 guests. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. That's like four times as many people as Michelle and I invite. I mean, it was just like 600 and I said, how big is your family? She's like, well, she's got 139 cousins. I know. How Catholic is that, right? And so, and then she got somber. And she said, you know, my daughter and said, I just, I want to invite all these people because I want to honor my, my late brother. I kind of perked up. I'm sorry. What's going on? And it turned out that this woman had uh, a son who f 
four years ago in October, passed away at the age of 27. And she said that, you know, she started to explain the kind of guy that he was and how he was a very giving guy. But she explained that night that uh, he was on I-75. His car ran out of gas. So he had uh, gas tanks and he walked to the gas station at the exit. And about 2 a.m. that night, the detective showed up at her door and they were asking questions about her son. And they didn't, she, you know, she didn't get it. She's like, no, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, ma'am, we just found your son. The, the officers found the gas cans on the side of the road. They went up I-75. They found the, the car on the side of the road, parked, and in the ditch... Her son was laying there dead. And when they investigated, he didn't um, have any bullet holes. There was no there was no wounds of any kind. The coroner didn't find any. Uh, there was no heart attack. There was no stroke. He was just, his, his heart just stopped. And she found that out at 2 a.m., a little less than four years ago. And as she told the story, it was just heavy, you know? Like she had carried this for a while, and I've known this woman for five minutes, and she was just ready to process this. Her daughter had said, you know, there were 600 people at this woman's son's funeral. She's like, if there's going to be, if we're going to have 600 people celebrate this, this guy's uh life and, and death, we should have 600 people celebrate in life. And so I'm sure for the mom, that made her happy, but also brought up a lot of stuff. And by the end of the conversation, it was like, man, she is broken. It was, it was heavy. It was, I was, I was, part of me was hoping that someone else would come over to talk, to maybe lighten it up a little bit. That didn't happen. And she just carried it. And, and I, as, I can't imagine being a parent, having a kid and carrying that. Like you'll always carry that, right? I don't think we can all relate to the death of a child, but we're all broken. We all have stuff that we've carried around Maybe it's uh, another death of a loved one. Maybe it's a relationship that went awry. Maybe it's the what if of a crushed dream. You would set out to do a thing and it just it went completely wrong. And now you're stuck with the scars of how that went wrong. Maybe it's a relationship that you're actually in and it's just a constant reminder of a mistake you made because this person will not let it go and to be quite honest, you don't even forgive yourself. We're broken. We, and it's not just like, we're not victims. This isn't like the gospel of, man, we all got screwed up. It's like we're broken because we were also made that way. Paul lays that out in Ephesians chapter 2. He writes to the Ephesians and, and he basically does this thing that he does in like three or four other letters to other churches. Paul is very intent about making sure that people know his stance 
on grace. And so in the book to the Romans, or the book to First uh, Thess- uh, Thessalonians, he, there, there's like a section where he's like, I just need to make sure you get what grace is. So the verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, he starts by saying, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You know, people use, hear the, you don't hear the word wrath used often nowadays. Another, there's another translation called the message that has a section here that he writes, we inhale unbelief and we exhale disobedience. I thought that put that pretty succinctly. We know if we're honest with ourselves, if we look in the mirror that we are flawed and if given a chance, we're really tempted. We'd really like to do the thing that we know that God wouldn't have us do. We're broken. We're scraps. We're in pieces. And we try to hold it together the best we can, but every once in a while, our brokenness seeps out. And that's what Paul is trying to say at the beginning of this chapter. He's saying, look, You've lived this before. You will, at times, inhale unbelief and exhale disobedience. We're broken. Whether it's because something happened to us or because we're flawed from the beginning, we have this brokenness that Paul brings up again and again and again. This woman, it was a reminder out of nowhere this week. And I don't know how you deal with it. I know for me, I try to ignore it. I try to pretend it's not there. I put on a good face. You know, I, I might even have like three or four like good days in a row where I'm like, oh, I'm not broken. I'm, I'm a polished, I'm a polished servant of Jesus Christ. I'm glad no one laughed there. I messed up. And this, this uh, part of, of the letter to Ephesians kind of reminds me of a, a, a parable that Jesus tells. In Matthew chapter 18, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who is settling the debts of his kingdom. If you're running a kingdom, then just like any other kingdom, you have to manage the revenue that comes in and the expenses that come out. You have to do that in every business. You have to do that in every home. You have to do that in every kingdom. And so it came time in this parable for the king to reconcile the debts. And in Matthew chapter 18, it says that he brings a servant in because this servant owed, get this, 10,000 bags of gold. Now, a bag of gold in that time was representative of about 20 years of wages. So this servant owed 200,000 years of labor. If you take an 
a basic amount of money that someone might make year annually in the nonprofit sector, thirty to fifty thousand a year, and you extrapolate that out, that means this servant translated owes about six to ten billion dollars to the king. This story is absurd. No one would, I mean, my first question is like, what did he do to owe that much money? The Powerball came out uh, a few years ago, and it was a, you know, it's one of those big numbers. And so I don't know if you and your uh, family ever do this, but we sat down, my wife and I sat down and pretended like, what would we do if we won all that money? And we actually went through the exercise, because that's fun to do. Hey, we'll pay this off, we'll buy this, we'll give this money to this many people. We got to the end, and we only like got through 60 million. And then we're like, what do we do with the rest of the money? I don't know. So we gave up at that point. Six billion dollars is what this servant owes. So the listeners of this parable are like, well, this is an astronomical and ridiculous amount of money. And so the king does what any good manager would do. He says, let's seize all of this servant's assets. Let's put his family to work and then they will be in jail. Let's get it as much out of We're not going to get the $6 billion out of him. Let's get as much out of him as we can. And so it says that the servant drops to his knees. And I've heard the story before, but I never caught this. The servant drops to his knees and he says, just give me a little more time. As if time would do something, right? It's like, Greg, you owe the government $76 million. And I'm like, Okay, can you give me till next Thursday? <laughs> it's a ridiculous request. And so he he doesn't even realize that like and like this guy's still under the preconception that maybe he can pay back somehow when there's no way in this parable, in this hypothetical, that he would be able to do this. And so in the parable, the king has pity on the servant, and he orders that his debt be canceled. Six billion dollars canceled. And you know what's crazy about that is like it sounds like, oh, well, that that from the servant's perspective, that feels good. But you know what's a bummer about that is if you're the king, you went from holding a value of six billion dollars to having nothing. He canceled the debt and he took the hit. He took the hit to cancel the debt. And so the story goes on. i got to pull it up on my phone because it gets crazier. It says that the servant, uh, shortly after the debt was canceled, the servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. Okay, just for reference point, 100 silver coins is a little less than a day's wage in those times. So this guy finds somebody else who owes him what? Like 90 bucks? Maybe? He found someone who owned him 100 silver coins. He says he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees, sound familiar, and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. Sound familiar? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, 
They were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Yeah, something seems amiss here. Your debt was $6 billion and it was just canceled. And the same day, you're going to throw someone in jail over 90 bucks? It doesn't even make sense. Like this story is ludicrous. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Shouldn't you have mercy as I had mercy on you? And so this guy is so hung up on getting his money back that he doesn't realize that he was given a huge gift to begin with. If I go back to Ephesians, right after Paul talks about how we're broken, he follows that up by saying, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. If I look at the ledger, this guy was out everything. His life was over, and God made him alive. The king made him alive. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The incomparable riches of his grace. You know, I've heard grace talked about in a bunch of different contexts. This is a church thing. But people will talk about grace as like, there's saving grace. When I went to school, there was a big argument about sanctifying grace. There's healing grace. There's, And it's like we put grace into different compartments as if it's different things. But the thing you notice about the parable is the king offered to forgive the debt of this man regardless of how he acted after the fact. Grace was extended before it was ever even received. The king said, I'm going to cancel the debt. And what happened was the transaction was canceled. Okay, $6 billion, we're going to cancel it. We're going to, we'll call that whole thing off. But the grace that was offered wasn't just about a transaction. It was meant to be healing. It was meant to put together the piece, broken pieces that were there before. It was meant to change this man's life. And this man showed by going back out and demanding the money that was owed that he hadn't changed at all, that the message of the king went right over his head. Or in better terms, it went right over his heart. I like to hold grudges. It feels good. I mean, it does. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's, it feels good to feel like I, got, I have something on somebody, right? They wronged me. And so I can be superior. I know that doesn't seem like something I would do. But I get to feel superior. Yeah, they owe me big time. And every time I read this story, I'm like, I 
just because it feels good. Is grace changing me? Is it putting me back together? Or am I missing the grace that's already being extended to me? When Paul talks about grace, he talks about how when we inhale disbelief or unbelief and we exhale disobedience, grace making me more obedient. If the king is being generous to me, am I being generous to the people in my life? If the king is showing mercy to me, am I showing mercy to the people in my life? If the king is offering healing to me, am I offering healing to the people in my life? Or do I just keep living the way I was living before? The transaction was paid. The debt was canceled. But my life isn't really changed at all. What I would say is, if God offers us grace, it's not just so that our transaction's canceled. It's so that there's something bigger. And Paul talks about it, actually. Right in the next section, verse 8, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You know what's great is the next verse. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God, in his infinite wisdom, in his incredible mercy, takes the pieces that we're broken into, takes our broken souls, our broken hearts, our broken minds, he heals them, he puts them back together. We're his handiwork. We're not just meant to be. Uh, we're not just. We're not just meant to be able to end our lives and go. Did I end up in the positive or the negative? How did my revenue flow go? It's bigger than that. I can't imagine what it's like to go through what some of you carried in today. I don't know it, but I don't need to know it. I just know that all of us have broken pieces that we carry around. And we've heard the message of grace before. Over and over we hear it. I see some of you guys at church every week. And yet sometimes grace doesn't sink in. You get the song Amazing Grace. You get the significance there. You get that you're forgiven But grace isn't just about forgiveness. It's about healing. Anne Lamott is a a writer that I've been reading a lot lately. And she had a quote that if you follow our Facebook, we posted this week. And it said that man lives by mending. And grace is the glue. We need grace to pull us together. 
And if we just accept the one part of it, we just accept the transaction being canceled, we miss the fact that God created us for something else. It's the verse I love. I, I, I couldn't get enough of this verse. We started this section, we started this uh, series on Ephesians, and we met the first time as a preaching meeting, and I said, I got to do Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. I need that. I need that. Because the verse says, we are his handiwork. Grace isn't just for us. It's not just for us. For his handiwork, even if it's with crappy scraps that we found on the stage, then God can start to use it. Almost. We're broken. You see, when God puts our pieces back together, so that he can create a space in us so that the world can see him. What'd you carry in today? Do you have a grudge that's lasted longer than some TV talk shows? Were you hurt by someone? Did you lose something? God's grace isn't just a transaction. It's meant to change us. I read that story of the servant, and I think about how many things God has covered and canceled the debt in my life. And I can't imagine not being changed by that. When we're surrounded by divine generosity, when we're surrounded by the kindness of the holy, when we're engulfed by amazing grace, it has to change us. It takes our broken pieces and puts them back together so that we are his handiwork. 